0: As you're seated, please open to Genesis chapter 21, and we continue to work through this this wonderful book together, Genesis, the book of beginnings. We've had uh, so much good good feedback on the lessons that we've learned together and how God is blessing this study, and it, it is a blessing for us. To know that God's working, He's speaking through His word into our hearts and changing us, growing us to, into the image, the likeness of Jesus, our Savior. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in, I'm sorry, 21. We're going to start in chapter 1, read all the way to 21. <laughs> Verse 1 of chapter 21 The Lord visited Sarah as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And she said, "'Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age.'" And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, "'Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac.'" And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not! "'For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. "'Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, "'for I will make him into a great nation.' "'Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water "'and she went and filled the skin with water "'and gave the boy a drink. "'And God was with the boy and he grew up. "'He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. "'He lived in the wilderness of Paran "'and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt.' At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, "'God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned.' And Abraham said, "'I will swear.' When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, "'I do not know who has done this thing.' You did not tell me, and I've not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we praise you that you have given us your word. And Lord, we pray that you would work through it again in our minds and our hearts to change us, to grow us, to edify, Lord, to challenge, to convict, to grow us in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we said, we have observed communion together. We've uh, observed the Lord's Supper coming together to celebrate, to um, proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And this morning is also a, a family worship weekend where we keep our our canyon kids with us. And so you may hear some some cups falling on the ground. You may hear some crayons scribbling on the paper. And, and we're grateful for all of those noises, those sounds, because the families are here together. And uh, we're not going to let that distract us any more than we would the buzzing sound that kept happening at the first part of the service. We're going to be just rejoicing in the Lord. Uh, but what we were celebrating, what we were remembering about Jesus was a really really a mixture of a high point in the history of the world and such a low point at the same time. Just an extreme high and extreme low. And, and really, uh, this is... The promise of God that we have in Jesus because of the, the low point that Jesus experienced in taking our sins, paying the penalty for them, and suffering at such a degree that we'll never understand, and yet the high of that promise of God that now we have forgiveness, we have God's grace upon us to, to live forever with Him in heaven, and now on earth with that hope And then the hope that we're proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns, that he's coming back for us. So at the very least, we're proclaiming two promises of God that are amazing, that are miraculous, that are so awe-inspiring. And there are many more promises. But this is an idea of of what happens here in Genesis, a a really big high, a a great event, and, and, and a really low, difficult, calamitous event. And then at the end, we get these last few verses that just seem kind of ordinary and regular and every day. And we're going to be seeing that God works in all of these, the lows, the highs, and the most of the time, <laughs> everything in between. And, and as God works, what's happening with our faith? So those are really the three distinct sections in this chapter. And let's look at each a little bit more closely in order. The first section, in verses 1 through 7, we see that God brings the Son. God brings the Son. That's lowercase s, if you're taking notes, s-o-n. Not the Son, Jesus. He would come later through this Son, Isaac. But this is the promised Son, the one that they've been waiting for years for. God promised Isaac long ago. And the point here is that God came through. God comes through. He delivers on His promise exactly as He said. Sarah, not Hagar, conceived and bore Abraham, not Abimelech, a son, not a daughter, at the time which He said, not earlier, not later, and it's this son, Isaac. It's reiterated throughout this section. Just like God said, the way he said it, when he said it would happen, it's here and it's now. He's come through. Verse 1 says, the Lord, the covenant, self-sustaining Yahweh God, creator, visits Sarah. That is a special, direct, divine visitation from God to Sarah because he said he would. He said it and he did it. And he he has delivered on this promise. That's a key part of who God is. He fulfills his promises. You know, false gods, idols out there, the ones that we fall for so often, never make any promises and never keep any promises because they can't. They're not real. But we convince ourselves of some promises. We convince ourselves we can follow them because we'll get something. Something will happen for us. It'll be good. And those promises cannot be fulfilled. They never are in idols. But God is the God who speaks promises, who gives us his covenant, who gives us his word and fulfills it because he is good. He is living and he does all that. That's part of who he is. So God directly and divinely intervened in Sarah's life to bring Isaac. Now the question that may come up in our minds as we read this and we see this is, does he do that for me? Does God directly and divinely intervene in my life like He did with Sarah? And the first thing we need to recognize that is that He is constantly and continually working in every moment of our life. He never stops, He never looks away, He never gets distracted. Oh, oh I forgot. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that was about to happen to you. He's directly involved in every area of our life all the time, always. He never stops. There's never a time he isn't working. Did you know, for instance, that our sin is so bad, and we don't think about this very often. We, you know, sometimes when you're sitting there and you're wondering, why are these people singing about God's grace? And how come these people are, are talking about mercy? And, and you know, that's, that's all nice and wonderful. No, that's, that is nice and wonderful because our sin really is so bad that at any moment God could strike us down with a bolt of lightning and he would be right to do so. But he hasn't to this point. He doesn't. Because in his grace, in his mercy, he's he's giving us time to repent, he's giving us time to grow, and he's he's giving us life, he's giving us food and water, and he's providing for us. Every second of our life, he is involved in withholding judgment. Is there anybody that's excited about that? (laughs) Did you know? Not only that, God is sovereign, and you have these verses in your notes. You have that box on the side of your notes. Thank you, uh, Kim, for setting that box up for us. Uh, those verses are not extra verses that we just like to tack on there to give you something on, on that page. Um, I just want to review these for us so that we know what's in these verses. You know where to find these verses because they're so important for us. God is sovereign. He controls storm clouds, Zechariah 10.1. God is intimately involved with the weather all around us, the wind, the hail, the lightning, Psalm 148. And that's been really important these last few weeks, hasn't it? He's been so good to give us the rain that we've had in in, in Jeremiah 51. God's the one who kills, who wounds, and who heals, Deuteronomy 32. God's in control of who's rich and who's poor. He says that in 1 Samuel 2 and Proverbs 22. God's sovereign over the nations in Job 12. He is sovereign over kings and wisdom and all of the seasons in Daniel 2 and Daniel 5 and Proverbs 21. God is sovereign even over, in, and this is Isaiah 45, well-being and calamity. The, the things that are easy that we like, the things that are really difficult that we don't like so much. He's sovereign over Lamentations 3, good and bad. The good things, the bad things. He's sovereign over... Job forty two says evil in the ESV, but it's it's disaster. It's the the worst things that happen. He's he's sovereign over. It. He, he's sovereign over um, laws that bring good, laws that bring harm. Ezekiel twenty. He's sovereign over spirits who bring harm. First Samuel sixteen. Lying spirits in Second Kings twenty two. You remember last week we looked in Genesis 20, how far into sin we're allowed to even go. He holds people back from sin. He's sovereign over who's born when in Genesis 20 and 30. He's sovereign even over whether you are mute, deaf, dumb, blind. He's sovereign over all of that, Exodus 4. He's sovereign over when you will die, James 4. He's sovereign over every provision you enjoy in your entire life, Psalm 104, and even your job in James 4. That's a lot. That's like everything you can think about in your life your your breath and your food, and whether you get sick or whether you're not. God is directly and intimately involved in every part of your life, even more than you and I are. (laughs) He's more involved and knows and does more than even we do. I didn't get to decide when I was born, I didn't get to decide what I look like. Neither did you, but all of that God decides. But does he intervene like this with Sarah? Does he directly intervene like this? Well, probably, but how would we know with our limited perspective, our wisdom that we have? How would we be able to tell the difference? You know, some of the things that happen, we say, well, things just fell into place, right? Oh, it was just lucky. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, Things just worked out. No, none of that was true. God did this. In the hard stuff, in the good stuff, no, this was God at work. There's no such thing as good luck or bad luck. All the praise, all of the glory, all the credit goes to God, because He brings good out of all of it. And again, as we said last week, He even uses our freedom to make our own all decisions, our own choices. He uses our freedom and still works through all of that to bring about His will. He's so amazing, so powerful, so wise. Now, what He hasn't done for us is speak to us about, you know, I'm going to bring the Messiah through your line. So, so, He's not giving us that direct promise, and He's not working that directly in our lives, but He has promised us that for all of us, when we turn to Him in Jesus Christ, He's going to make us more like Jesus. He's going to chisel, He's going to work, He's going to form and shape and mold us into the image of His Son, and what He says He was going to do and is going to do, He does. And so we know in our life, through all of the things that happen, the good and the bad and the everything in between, God's working to bring about His Word that says, you're going to be more like Jesus. And that's good news. But it's a different way of seeing life. It's a different way of thinking about what happens. And we need to remember that. That's what He says He's going to do. That's what He's going to do in our life. But what Abraham and Sarah model for us here in these verses is the proper response to that. The first thing we see in verse 3 is obedience. They name him Isaac, as he said. They, they circumcise him in verse 4. Both of those for, were from chapter 17. We obey him. And then they give credit to God for what happened. They, they give him the praise. Look, look what God did. <laughs> he brought laughter for everybody because at 90 years old, whoever would have thought that I would have had a son, right? She, never, she couldn't have a son anyway. She was barren. But suddenly, she, here she is. She's having a son. And all of the credit, all of the attention goes to God for what they could not do on their own. So that's our model. We obey Him. We praise Him. We're following Him. We're, we're, we're loving Him. We're doing what He says because He's in control. He's bringing about His will. What's interesting about this section, though, is that it very quickly moves on. it's it's such a great thing. It's such a praise for God. It's so wonderful that he has been born, that God has come through, but then it just moves on. Okay, (laughs) let's get on to the next section, right? We have this word of God to teach us and we've learned what we need to learn. Now we move on to the next section. Section two, verses eight through 21, after God brings the son, God brings separation. God brings separation here. Verse eight says that Isaac grew. Now that's not a given, at this point in time in history, that's not a given that a child who has been born will survive very long. It wasn't just uh, s- such a certainty as, as much as it seems that it is today, especially for an older couple like this, but he survives and he comes to the point where he's weaned somewhere between two and four years old. So just for a round number, we'll say three. We'll say he was about three years old. And for Abraham, that calls for celebration. This is a turning point, right, in Isaac's life the rest of the section doesn't have much to do with Isaac. (laughs) There's not much Isaac left in this whole section. Really, the shift here becomes the focus to Ishmael, the son of Abraham, who was not the promised son. So there's going to be a separation here. And this section has five different parts to it that we'll briefly look at. And even though this attention does shift to Ishmael, you'll notice that in this chapter, not one time is his name mentioned. (laughs) For some reason, Nobody thinks of his name. He's called the child, the boy, the son of the slave woman. He's called a lot of different things, but he's never actually called by his name Ishmael. When Moses writes this as the narrator, he's not there. When Sarah speaks, she doesn't call him Ishmael. When his own mother, Hagar, speaks, she doesn't call him Ishmael. When God speaks... Nobody calls him by his name because he's not the promised son. And, and even though this, the, the, this, the focus has shifted more onto Ishmael here, really the account highlights God, who God is, not Ishmael or the other people. But the first part that we see in verses 8 through 10 is the conflict. The conflict because verse 9, we see the word laughing in the ESV. That's, that's the word that we have there. And there's debate over what that means, what, what exactly Ishmael was doing to or with Isaac. But Paul's explanation in Galatians 4, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the the Greek word is persecuting. Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. So, that's what we'll go with, Scripture interpreting Scripture, telling us what this word laughing means. Now, whatever specifically he was doing, it caught Sarah's attention. She says, get him out of here. He's got to go. Now, Ishmael is at this point, well, when, when Isaac was born, Ishmael was 14 years old. Now that Isaac is about three, that makes Ishmael about 17 years old. And so, Sarah's statement in verse 10 is that Isaac is the one that the inheritance is meant for, not, I, not Ishmael, so he needs to get out. Now that, there's, now that Isaac is here, now there's persecution, Ishmael's got to go. So, that's the conflict. Number two, the second part, verses 11 to 13, is the conversation. What we see in the conversation is that Abraham is troubled by all of this. He's really, it says he's dis, it's very displeasing to him. Why? Well, because as it says, this is his son. 17 years he's had this son, Ishmael, living with him. But there's a competing interest here. You have God's promise fulfilled in Isaac and, and all of the promises that are going to be fulfilled. And then you have Ishmael, Abraham's attempt to try to help God. And these, these two are competing now. These two are causing a conflict. So now, what are you going to do, Abraham? Are you going to stick with God's promises, or are you going to stick with your own efforts and, and what you have brought about? Because you can't have both. But what God does in this conversation is, again, he reiterates his promise for Abraham to remember, to hold on to, and to act upon. What is that promise? It is through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. That's the promise he gave him. He's been giving him for 25 years. This is the promise, son. You need to remember God's promise. Find your joy, your contentment, your hope in that, not in what you've done. But Ishmael is still a human being. He's still a person. And so God cares for him. He says, don't worry about Ishmael. Because he's your son, I'm going to fulfill the promise that I made to him. Do you remember the promise God made to Hagar and to Ishmael? I'm going to take care of them, and I'm going to make him into a great nation. So what God's doing is he's reminding Abraham of these promises that he's already given him. Live on these promises. Act out the word of God. In his grace, he has this conversation to reassure him of what he's said. Think about what I've said. Isn't God so good to us? Isn't he so patient with us? So often we forget all that He's told us, all that He's said, all the promises that we have. You know, God, do you care? God, are you there? God, is Jesus returning? I mean, these promises, He says, "They're, they're here. I've given them to you. Think on those. Act on those. Live those out. Next, in verses 14 to 16, we see number three, the calamity. This is where it gets really hard. The calamity. Although it was hard, Abraham obeyed completely and immediately. He gets up very early in the morning. He says, okay, this is what I've got to do. I'm going to to do what God says. But rather than casting them out, like Sarah said, that that word casting out like God did with Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, and they left with nothing but the clothes on their back that he provided them, Abraham says, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to give you bread and water to survive. Now, it's kind of funny that we have to say this, but some people believe that the scripture is in error here, and that, that it says that he he gave the bread and the water and the boy Ishmael and set them on Sarah's shoulder, so she, on on Hagar's shoulder. So she's carrying the bread and the water and this toddler boy because the scriptures were out of order and they didn't understand. But the scriptures are in order and. And Ishmael is 17 years old, so he's not on her shoulder. He gave her bread and water, and then he gave her her son, but the bread and water on her shoulder. Okay, so we're clear about that. (laughs) I know it it seems kind of ridiculous, but that's the claim that people make. So we, we understand this the right way. This is what happens. But Abraham, in his thoughtful provision, gives them this food, this drink, and yet they're doomed. They're doomed. As they leave, verse 14 says, they start wandering around in the wilderness. Now, back in chapter 16, when they left, she knew right where she was going. She made a beeline straight south down to Egypt. I'm going back home. But for some reason now, she says, I can't get there, or, or I'm not comfortable. I can't go back there. So they're wandering around in the desert wilderness, and it doesn't take long in the desert for bread and water to be spent. And now they're in deep trouble. And it's such despair that in verse 15, in the ESV, we have the word put. She put the child under the bush, but the word is really like a tossing or a dropping. She, she, they just get to the point where they're in, they're in so much trouble physically. She drops him underneath the bush just to give him a little bit of respite from the sun as his life fades away from him. And then she goes away, far enough away to, to, to see him still, but she can't watch everything that happens and she Hear what's about to happen. So, so she gets far enough away, and she knows that when he's gone, it won't be much longer after that that she's gone, and they're both just going to die. As she cries here, it's a wailing, weeping kind of despair cry. And Ishmael at seventeen must have recognized the danger also. You know, and he started crying, and God hears his voice. That's what his name means, right? Ishmael, God hears. God hears the voice of this boy, but this is real danger. This is real calamity, right? I mean, this is not, oh my goodness, my automatic dishwasher has just failed and I've got to buy a new one. <laughs> this is life and death, and we have no hope. Our lives are fading. It's so hopeless. It's so tragic because Hagar had forgotten the promise of God. So in number four, verses 17 through 19, we get to see comfort. Comfort. The comfort, comfort come to them from God. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and says, What's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong? <laughs> what do you mean what's wrong? We're on the edge of death here, right? I mean, we're about to die from dehydration, from exposure, from starvation. I mean, everything's wrong. But God didn't give him a chance. He didn't give him a chance to answer that question. You know, you have that list going in your mind. You know, that li- you know some, if somebody asks me how I'm doing, I'm going to give it to them. This is going wrong, and that's going wrong, and that didn't happen, and this person did this, and all of that list, and I'm just going to let them have it. God didn't let him didn't have that chance. What's wrong? What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not for God. Would you remember that? Would you just memorize that? <laughs> fear not for God, and then insert an attribute, a a truth, a promise, a character, uh, something that God has done. Fear not for God and fill it in. (laughs) That's what he tells her. Fear not for God has heard the voice of the boy. God hears. God knows. He sees. That's who this God is. He's not caught off guard. He's not caught by surprise. Get up, lift up the boy and hold him fast. Get back over to your son. Go take care of him. He's not going to die here. I gave you this promise. He's going to be a great nation, a multitude of people. Act out the promise of God. There there doesn't seem to be any hope around. So why would she do this? Because I'm going to make him into a great nation. Remember the promise. Remember God's promise. So she does. She she gets up and and God opens her eyes. And look, there's a well of water there. In all of their despair and all of their calamity and all of their tragedy, they didn't even know, but God had led them right to the place where there was water. And He had to open her eyes to see it. So she goes and she gets the water and she gives him water. And they survived. And then she goes down to Egypt and gets him a wife because how's he going to have children? How's he going to turn into a nation without a wife? So there's comfort from the Lord. You know, when we're saying, God, can't you see my circumstances? God says, yes, can't you remember my promises? <laughs> right? And this was for the outcasts. This was for Hagar and Ishmael. God even cares for the people around us who don't know Jesus. He's caring for people. God loves to show mercy and grace. God loves to be gracious and merciful. So we've seen the conflict, the conversation, the calamity, the comfort, finally. Number five, the last part of this section in verses 20 to 21, we see the continuation the continuation of this, this little family. God was with the boy. Because of that, he grew up. He lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow. And every day, God was faithful to his promise. He, he saw this young boy to maturity and to marriage and to having children and grew him into an entire nation. Every day, God was faithful to his promise. Not just in the really big, great moments. Not just in the terrible, low Painful moments, but in the everyday, it's important to know that God is there for us in those big moments. The good, the great, the painful, the hopeless times, He is there. But it's important to learn and to trust now because there are a whole lot more of the now times and between those big moments, the, the high mountains and the low valleys, there's a whole lot more of this normal time that we call normal than those moments. And that, this time right now, is where our faith is built. Our faith is tested in the hard times. Our faith is rewarded in the good times, but it's built in the in-between times. That's where we're growing and and stretching and and being being grown in our faith. That's, That's where God gives us those times to grow our faith so that we'll be ready for the hard times, so that we'll be praising him in the good times. Now, before we move on, and look at the last section in galatians 4 paul uses this passage this chapter to illustrate a point and and we were going to go there but for the for the sake of time we'll we'll just refer you to those verses and we'll talk about them because in galatians paul defends his ministry but more importantly the gospel because there were people teaching the Galatians, look, you, you, you can't just believe and have faith and then act out that faith towards good works. No, you've got to do the good works because that is faith, because that's how you get saved. That's what the Judaizers were teaching the Galatians. You've got to work your way up to, to God. You've got to make yourself better. You've got to do what he says. And you're not saved unless you do these things. But Paul says, no, that's not good news at all because none of us can do that. As we reviewed in in the communion and the Lord's Supper this morning, we, we can't be good enough. Jesus already did that. The good news is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified before God, declared righteous before God because we can't do it by the works of the law. In fact, we are crucified with Christ when we believe in Him. We're put to death, our flesh is, so that we might live to God by faith. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians, leading up to this chapter where he refers to this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I was waiting to see if somebody was saying it along with me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our new life in Christ. But not only that, we're not just saved from sin's penalty and its consequences, but from the power of sin in our life. That's what Paul's explaining. You can't just continue your salvation by working and working and working hard. It's faith that works in you. It's faith that brings about the the assurance and the holiness that God calls for because we've put on Christ rather than sin. We've put on our Savior rather than ourselves and the law that exposes sin. We're no longer slaves to it. So then he turns to Genesis 21 in his mind, and he he refers the Galatians to this chapter. He was frustrated that they were trying to work their way to to pleasing God by, by doing works in their own strength and for their own reasons to try to keep themselves in the love of God. He says, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was born of a slave woman who represents slavery to the flesh, slavery to the works of the law, and trying to work your way to God, and it will never work. Isaac, who was born of Sarah, was free, and she represents the life, the inheritance that we have from God in Jesus, not through works of the flesh, but through faith. So, Paul uses this section to, to show us that illustration, to teach us the, the importance of this, and he says, just get rid of the slave woman like Abraham had to do. Kick that out. Get rid of the works of the law, trying to work your way to God. That That's putting yourself under the slavery of sin and law. He says, get away from that. So it's a vivid picture. And and it's an important point because Paul uses this to illustrate the truth of the gospel, not just to save us, but for our life. And even though that's not what Genesis 21 was teaching, that's how he used it. And so that's why we needed to review that, because it's so important for us. Will you choose to surrender in faith and work out your faith or will you choose to try to work your way to heaven through the works of the law? So back to Genesis 21. He, God brings the Son. He brings separation. There's now no competition. There's no conflict anymore. Yet both sides are cared for by God's grace. So finally, let's look at section 3, verses 22 to 34. To end out Genesis 21, we have this dissection on Abraham and Abimelech again. They come together again, and in section three, God brings stability. He brings stability in Abraham's life. After the big events of the celebration, the joy of Isaac being born and weaned, after the really terrible low valley events of calamity and suffering, the day-to-day just keeps going. And God works through it all. The final section has three parts also, and each part shows the stability that God brings to Abraham's life and for the promised Isaac and for Sarah. So, in the first part, verses 22 to 24, God brings stability through Abraham's witness. Abraham's witness. Abimelech approaches Abraham and says, God is with you in all you do. As Abimelech is watching Abraham, he sees God's presence in his life. There's something about Abraham that makes him stand out from others who don't know this God. And you must have heard that promise that whoever blesses him will be blessed and whoever curses you will be cursed. So he says, because God is with you, I've been watching you, whether good things happen or bad things happen, and Abimelech saw some bad things from, from, from Abraham, right? We looked at that. Whether good things or bad things are happening, God is with you. And so the key isn't that like everything's great and everything's rosy all the time around you, Abraham, but God is with you. There's something different. So swear to me here by that same God that is with you two things, that you'll not deal falsely with me or my family and that you'll deal with us kindly as I dealt with you. Don't deal falsely with, you know, based on our history, you have dealt falsely with me before. So I want you to swear that you won't do that. Now, we talked about it last week, that unbelievers can call out sin in our life and that can be, that can be painful. It can rattle our cage a little bit. But God uses even that when we respond rightly, when we confess, we say, you know what? You're right. That was, that was sinful. I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I believe in Jesus and I believe that he saves me, but I, I, I'm going to confess that. I did. I messed up. And I praise God that I have forgiveness. And God can even use that to reach an unbeliever who calls me out or you out for sin. And we saw that Abraham confessed, look, here's what I thought, here's why I did that, and it doesn't make sense, it didn't make it right, but that's what I was thinking. And so, God uses that even as a gospel picture in our life before unbelievers, and and He forgives us when we repent and believe. But the consequences can still remain here on earth, right? And they did here for Abraham. He had this reputation now with Abimelech of dealing falsely. So... God uses this witness, this testimony in Abraham's life to bring together neighbors in a covenant to bring stability in their lives. Because what they're talking about here is a well that will determine whether Abraham and his family survive in the wilderness or not. Without water, you're not gonna survive in in the desert. So Abraham says, okay, I agree, I will swear. Now we know from Matthew 5, Jesus tells us believers, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You don't need to be swearing this, and I promise that, and I, you know, have integrity. But again, Abraham had ruined that, so it takes time to rebuild trust. We need to remember that also. Remember that trust is built with people. So God brings stability. He brings stability to Abraham's life through his witness, maybe even partly despite what Abraham had done, but definitely because of the testimony of God being with him. So that's the first part. In verses 25 to 31, number two, God brings stability through Abraham's work, just his work that he's doing in everyday life. In these verses, there's something that has to be resolved. He says, okay, I'll swear that we're not going to deal falsely, that I'll deal kindly, but there's an issue. We've got to take care of this first. And we've talked about this before. You've got to deal with conflict, right? Some of your servants took the well, and I need the well to survive. Now, there's something familiar about Abimelech's response. I don't know anything about that. Isn't that what he told God with, with Sarah? Like, I didn't know anything about, I didn't know she was, saved, that, that she was married. I, I didn't know. Abraham says, look, you, you're one of your servants. Some of your servants took my well. I didn't know. Th- this king has a, is starting to get a, a reputation of not knowing a lot <laughs> that's happening around him. You know, Abraham's gonna set apart seven, seven ewe lambs. What are those for? I don't know. There's, there's a lot he doesn't know. Anyway, um, Abraham trusts in the Lord. In his faith in God, he acts, he works fervently, he digs a well, he needs it for survival, and he's not going to deal deceitfully, so he approaches Abimelech and says, we've got to work this out. I dug this well and I need this. So these seven ewe lambs are are a gift, they're a complete gift as a witness that I dug this well. And you're going to take them, Abimelech, Abraham says, agreeing that the well belongs to me. So they did that. And then with the sheep and the oxen, they they cut this covenant and they are able to live together in stability as neighbors, even a believer with an unbeliever. So these are a gift. And it's a covenant that they make at Beersheba. Beer means well, not what we think of today for those four letters there. Beer here means well. Sheba means either covenant or seven, as in the, the seven lambs. So, this became a place of remembrance, of, of remembering God, what God did, and, and how uh, God had provided the well, and God had protected that for Abraham, and how God had brought these two people together. And so, this would become a constant place. It, through the rest of the Old Testament, God's people will continually come back to Beersheba. But in this work, this everyday work, it doesn't seem like such a big deal in light of the two events that happened before this. God is working to bring blessing to Abraham, to his family, and to his neighbors because it was such an excellent opportunity to witness to them because God is keeping them in the same area. And that's how we need to begin in our neighborhoods and our community. We need to be working to the good relationships with people around us because that gives us the opportunity to, to give that witness, to be that testimony for Jesus and how he changes us. Hebrews 12, 14 says, we need to be pursuing peace with all people. People should see God in us. They should see Jesus alive and working through us. Even when we mess up, confessing, receiving his, his restoration and, and forgiveness and his cleansing. Well, the, the final part, verses 32 to 34, number three, God brings stability through Abraham's worship, through his worship. The two of these men make a covenant, and then they just go back to their lives. In verse 33, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree. A tamarisk tree is, a, is known to be a sturdy, hardy tree. And it's a reminder, a memorial for God and His staying power, because this is the firmness, the power, the eternality of God. He is the everlasting God here, right? Right? This is, a, this is a tree that's a supply of, there, there's a sign of a supply of water and I'm intending to stay here because God told me to stay because this is the everlasting God. So I'm planting this tree to remind us, to show us, to teach us that this is Yahweh El Olam, the, the everlasting Lord God. That's where stability comes from for Abraham really. It's not in the circumstances or the events or these covenants that will be broken later on by Abimelech and his descendants. It's in God himself. Abraham calls on the name of this God. And we've seen him as creator. We've seen God in Genesis as sustainer. We've seen him as the judge, as restorer, as God El Yon, God most high. There's none like him or, un, or comparable to him. We've seen God as El Royi the God who sees, who takes notice, who's watching and sees everything. We've seen him as God, the El Shaddai, the almighty God, all-powerful, lacking nothing, needing nothing. He is his own sustaining, and nothing is too difficult for him. And here he is, the everlasting God. This is who our God is. This is This is who the God is that Abraham worships. And he remains there in the land, as he's told, because his stability comes from this God who, who blesses, who brings provision, who is the everlasting, almighty, powerful God. So our application, as we, as we study this chapter, as we come to these verses, you know, there's going to be more testing, there's going to be some more hardship coming for Abraham, but, but this is where Abraham's learning and, and where he's being taught. And so our application is that we need to be strengthening our faith in God through His Word in the everyday, in the everyday, because God is constantly at work, again, always involved in every aspect of our life. Your faith is going to be tested in trials. It's going to be rewarded in the joys, but it's built now in the everyday when things are not super this way or super that way. So much life gets overhyped around us. Everything is the newest, the greatest, the grandest, the best, the fastest, all of the superlatives. Everything's always blown out of proportion, right? Live in the everyday. Live outside the big moments in the everyday with the big God who makes our faith and grows our faith. Because when we don't do that, we're really living like practical atheists. You know, I only turn to God when things are really good. I say, thank you, God. Or when things are really bad, please, God, help me. But all the, the 95% of the rest of my life, when I'm not growing in my faith in this Lord, it's because I'm living like a practical atheist, like he's not there. So we, we grow our faith and we worship this God every day. Highs, lows, everything in between. Because he is the everlasting, almighty God. Father, thank you for that. Thank you, God, for teaching us and showing us. And thank you for reminding us, Lord, of what you've already said. Lord, help us to learn, to study. Lord, help us to want to seek you, to grow in you, to grow our love for you, that we would believe, truly have faith in what you have said. God, you'd bring to our minds the promises that you've made, the promises that have been already fulfilled. God, the promises that will be fulfilled. Father, help us to remember. But God, even more, help us to act that out. Lord, to live as if that's true, because it is. Lord, the promise that we have in Jesus of salvation, God, that we were reminded of this morning in communion. Father, I pray that you would remind us of that and that we'd live that out, especially with our neighbors and with the people that we work with. God, that people would say, God is with you. God is present in your life. And, Lord, that we'd be able to share the gospel, the good news of our Savior. Lord, thank you for our salvation. We worship you because you are God, because you are good, because you are worthy. Lord, we worship you because you've saved us. You've made us new. You've made us alive within so that we can worship you. Father, help us to do that every day, Lord, in the highs, the lows, and everything in between for your glory, for your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.